Welcome to the Shoot Podcast. My name is Jeff Dowell. This is the third episode of our bonus episodes that we are doing on the 1776 report. If you haven't listened to the introduction, I encourage you to go back and listen to that, as it will explain a little bit about why we're doing this. This episode is called A Constitution of Principles. It is one thing to discern and assert the true principles of political legitimacy and justice. It is quite another to establish those principles among an actual people and an actual government here on earth. As Winston Churchill put it, in a not, dis- not dissimilar context, even the best of men struggling in the most just of causes cannot guarantee victory. They can only deserve it. The founders of the United States perhaps miraculously achieved what they set out to achieve, They defeated the world's strongest military and financial power and won their independence. They then faced the task of forming a country that would honor and implement the principles upon which they had declared their independence. The bedrock upon which the the American political system is built is the rule of law. The vast difference between tyranny and the rule of law is a central theme of political thinkers back to classical antiquity. The idea that the law is superior... To rulers is the cornerstone of English constitutional thought as it has developed over the centuries. The concept was transferred to the American colonies and can be seen expressed throughout colonial pamphlets and political writings. As Thomas Paine reflected in Common Sense, quote, For as in absolute governments the king is law, so in free countries the law ought to be king, and there ought to be no other. But lest any ill use should afterwards arise, let the crown or the conclusion of the ceremony be demolished and scattered among the people who, whose right it is. To assure such a government, Americans demanded a written legal document that would create both a structure and a process for securing their rights and liberties and spell out the division and limits of the powers of government. That legal document must be above ordinary legislation and day-to-day politics. That is what the founders meant by Constitution, and why our Constitution is the supreme law of the land. Their first attempt at a form of government, the Articles of Confederation and Perpetual Union, was adopted in the midst of the Revolutionary War and not ratified until 1781. During that time, American statesmen and citizens alike concluded that the Articles were too weak to fulfill a government's core functions, This consensus produced the Constitutional Convention of 1787, which met in Philadelphia that summer to write the document which we have today. It is a testament to those framers' wisdom and skill that the Constitution that they produce remains the longest continually operating written Constitution in all human history. The meaning and purpose of the Constitution of 1787, however, cannot be understood without recourse to the principles of the Declaration of Independence, human equality, the requirements for government by consent, and the securing of natural rights, which the Constitution is intended to embody, protect, and nature, nurture. Lincoln famously described the principles of the de- Declaration, and he was borrowing from Proverbs 25.11 as a, quote, apple of gold, unquote, and the Constitution as a, quote, frame of silver, unquote, meant to, quote, adorn and preserve, unquote, the apple. The latter was made for the former, not the reverse. The form of the new government that the Constitution delineates is informed in part by the charges the Declaration levels at the British Crown. For instance, the colonial colonists charged the British king with failing to provide or even interfering with representative government. 
Hence, the Constitution provides for a representative legislature. It also charges the king with concentrating executive, legislative, and judicial power into the same hands, which James Madison pronounced, quote, the very definition of tyranny, unquote. Instead, the founders organized their new government into three co-equal branches and checking and balancing the power of each against the, the others to reduce the risk of, of abuse of power. The intent of the framers of the Constitution was to construct a government that would be sufficiently strong to perform those essential tasks that only a government can perform, such as establishing justice, ensuring domestic tranquility, providing for the common defense, and promoting the general welfare, the main task named in the document's preamble, but not so strong as to jeopardize the people's liberties. In other words, the new government needed to be strong enough to have the power to secure rights without having the power as to enable or encourage it to infringe rights. More typically, the framers intended the new constitution to keep the 13 states united to prevent the breakup of the Union into two or more smaller countries while maintaining sufficient latitude and liberty for the individual states. The advantages of the of un, of Union are detailed in the first 14 pages of the Federalist Papers, a series of essays written to urge the Constitution adoption and boil down to preventing and deterring foreign adventurism in North America, avoiding conflicts between threats, achieving economies of scale, and best utilizing the diverse resources of the continent. While the Constitution is fundamentally a compact among the American people, it was ratified special by special conventions in the states. The peoples of the states admired and cherished their state governments, all of which had adopted Republican constitutions before a federal constitution was completed. Hence, the framers of the new national government had to respect the states' prior existence and jealous guarding of their own prerogatives. They also believed that the role of the federal government should be limited to performing those tasks that only a national government can do, such as providing for the nation's security or regulating commerce between states, and that most tasks were properly the responsibility of the states. And they believed the strong states, as competing power centers, would act as counterweights against a potentially overweening central government in the same way that a sep the separation of power checks and balances the branches of the federal government. For the founders, the principle that just government requires the consent of the governed in turn requires republicanism because of the chief because the chief way that consent is granted to a government on an ongoing basis is through the people's participation in the political process. This is the reason the Constitution guarantees to every state in the Union a republican form of government. Under the United States Constitution, the people are sovereign but the people do not directly exercise their sovereignty, for instance, by voting directly in popular assemblies. Rather, they do so indirectly through representative institutions. This is, on the most basic level, a practical requirement in a republic with a large population and extent of territory. But it is also, indeed, to be remedied to the defects common to all republics up to the time. The framers of the Constitution faced a twofold challenge. They had to assure those alarmed by the historical record that the new government was not too republican in simply copying the old failed forms, while also reassuring those concerned about overweening centralized power that the government of the new Constitution was republican enough to secure an equal natural rights and prevent the reemergence of tyranny. The main causes of prior Republican failures were class conflict and tyranny of the majority. In the simplest terms, 
the largest single faction in any republic would tend to band together and unwisely wield their numerical strength against unpopular minorities, leading to conflict and eventual collapse. The Founders' primary remedy was union itself. Against the old idea that Republicans had to be small, the Founders countered that the very smallness of prior republics all but guaranteed their failure. In small republics, the majority can more easily organize itself into a dominant faction. In large republics, interests become too numerous for any single faction to dominate. The inherent or potential partisan unwisdom of a dominant faction also would be tempered by representative government. Rather than the people acting as body, the people would instead select office holders to represent them. This would, and this is from Federalist 10, uh, refine and enlarge the public views by passing them through the medium of a chosen body of citizens whose wisdom may best discern the true interests of their country and whose patriotism and love of justice will be least likely to sacrifice it to temporary or potential considerations, unquote. And the separation of powers would work in concert with the principles of representation by incentivizing individual officeholders to identify their personal interests with the powers and progress of their offices and thus keep them alert to the danger of encroachment from the other branches and offices. The founders asserted that these innovations and others combined to create a republicanism that was at once old as well as new, true to the eternal principles and timeless ends of good government, but awake to the corrective of the deficiencies in prior examples of popular rule. One important feature of our written constitution is the careful way that it limits the powers of each branch of government, that it states that these those branches may do, and by implication, what they may not do. This is the real meaning of limited government, not that the government's size or funding levels remain small, but the government's power and activities must remain limited to certain carefully defined areas of responsibility as guarded by by bicameralism, federalism, and the separation of powers. The Constitution was intended to endure, but because the Founders well knew that no document written by human beings would ever be perfect or anticipate every future contingency, they provided for a process to amend the document, but only by popular decision-making and not by ordinary legislation or judicial decree. The first ten amendments, which would come to be known as the Bill of Rights, were included as the demand of those especially concerned about divesting the federal government with too much power and who wanted an enumeration of specific rights that the new government lawfully could not transgress, but all agreed that substantive rights are not granted by government. Any just government exists only to secure these rights, and they specifically noted in the Ninth Amendment that the Bill of Rights was a selective and not exclusive list. That is, the mere fact that a right is not mentioned in the Bill of Rights is neither proof nor evidence that it does not exist. It is important to note that the Founders understood understanding of three of these rights that are decisive for Republican government and the success of the Founders' project. Our first freedom, religious liberty, is foremost moral, a moral requirement of the natural freedom of human mind. As discussed in Appendix 2, it is also an indispensable solution to the political religious problems that emerge in the world, modern world. Faith is both a matter of private conscience and public import, which is why the founders encouraged religious freedom, free exercise, but barred the government from establishing any one natural religion. The point is not merely to protect the state from religion, but also 
to protect the religion from the state, so that the religious institutions would flourish and pursue their divine mission among men, like rel religious liberty, freedom of re speech, and of press is required by the freedom of the human mind. More plainly, it is required for any government in which they which the people choose the direction of government policy. To choose requires public deliberation and debate. A people that cannot publicly express its opinions, exchange ideas, or open, openly argue about the course of its government is not free. Finally, the right to keep and bear arms is required by the fundamental natural right of life. But no man may justly be denied the means of his own defense. The political significance of this right is hardly less important. An armed people is a people capable of defending their liberty no less than their lives, and is the last desperate check against the worst tyranny. That is the conclusion of Section 3. In the next section, we will be talking about challenges to America's principles.